0: Perhaps the most common phrase that is associated with the celebration of the communion of the bread and cup, which ordinance, as the Lord allows, we will partake of ourselves this afternoon, is the phrase that Paul references when addressing the Corinthians, when he presents to them that which the Lord had given to him, that he had received. He says that this is to be done in remembrance of Jesus. It's interesting to observe that though the synoptic Gospels all record the institution of the communion of the bread and cup on the last night that Jesus fellowshiped with his disciples before his Passion, it is only in Luke's Gospel where that phrase is given to us. Tuta poiete, ace tein, amen anamnesin. This do in remembrance of me. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus made that remark directly as it relates to the bread that he distributed to all the disciples. We aren't told in Luke's account that he said those same words with reference to the cup, yet as I already pointed out, when Paul is addressing the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and speaking about the cup, we read in verse 25, After the same manner also, Jesus took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do ye, as oft as ye drink it, ace, tame, amen." Anamnasin, the exact same language as is given in Luke chapter 22. Do this in remembrance of me, is the phrase. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. I want to emphasize that verb show for a moment. It is kata angelo. It is a strengthened sense of manifesting and declaring. And so the emphasis is like the following. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, as often as we partake in these symbols that are before us today, as we prepare our hearts to enter into this ordinance, we are manifesting in a powerful, profound way something that is important to perceive And its final objective in terms of relevance in manifesting whatever we're showing is the Lord's second coming. We are to show something until the Lord returns. Let's think for a moment about the phrase, this do in remembrance of me, a very common idea associated with this ordinance, but I wish to probe your minds and your hearts and suggest that there are spaces of reflection that perhaps you haven't entered into yet in your own understanding of what that phrase can mean. We'll begin to explore this space by asking some questions. When Jesus himself used the language of remember me, Was he speaking primarily for his own sake? Was he bringing forth that directive in the sense of saying, remember me for my sake, for his own interests? Certainly they would be perfectly just and righteous interests. But the question still is, was he primarily thinking about himself and say, remember me, because I have a personal interest in your recollection of who I am and what I have done for you. Or, was the emphasis on his sheep? Remember me, for this will be beneficial to you, my sheep. Another way of thinking about this is to ask the question, is this primarily a plea for acknowledgement this do in remembrance of me. This do in remembrance of the one who has served you all these years and has taught you so faithfully and has set an example before you and now heads to the cross at Calvary and will accomplish your salvation. This do in remembrance of me. Please acknowledge, please understand Please make sure it is very clear in your minds what I have done for you. Or is this yet another act of selfless consideration for others? Is the emphasis more in the direction of not so much a personal interest from Jesus for acknowledgement for his disciples to be aware of who he is in his person as such and what he has done for them because he did it for them and he wants that to be understood, please remember me. Or, as I say, is this more in the direction of another act of selfless consideration for others? That is to say, thinking about what he is about to accomplish and seeing that there's something beneficial in his own life and in the patterns of his own experience that will benefit his disciples as they continue on their journey to live the Christian life. Is this a sign, these symbols, this institution of the communion of the bread and cup, is this a sign primarily of a recollection of Jesus' journey, when we consider the sign of the broken bread and we consider the sign of the poured out juice, is it something by which primarily we are to recollect Jesus' journey, or is it an encouragement for our own journey? Now I would state, as you reflect upon these questions that this is not an either-or proposition. It is perhaps a matter of emphasis, but even when we state it's a matter of emphasis, I think we can even get into the psychology that's involved in that sort of question, and I hope to somewhat make that case in this study. But what I mean by that is, When I say the psychology, I'm referring to Jesus himself and thinking about what was driving him. Personal acknowledgement from his disciples or an interest in their well-being. Even if the two work hand in hand, which I would submit that they do. That is to say, to understand what Jesus' journey accomplished for them is going to be very useful for them to understand their own journey and so the two are involved with one another. But I do think it's a helpful question to raise when Jesus was speaking that from his heart to his disciples, though certainly being who he is in the fullness of his being and having wisdom and understanding, no doubt he recollected the relevance of his own life, certainly, but I still would argue that perhaps there's an avenue of appreciation here that isn't as readily spoken about. And that is when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. It is something that he is instituting in a selfless way in consideration of his disciples because he believes there'll be something beneficial if you will remember disciples, Christians, as you continue in your own journey, what these symbols represent and can encourage you by and so I'll give you a couple of other examples in Jesus life that bring us into the same general territory of wondering why did Jesus ask the question what was the primary motivation from his side was it in the normal and all too often interest that we humans envelop ourselves in and that is self-interest I want to be acknowledged that sort of a thing Or was it in the interest of benefiting others? Take, for example, when Jesus was in Caesarea Philippi, gathered privately with several of his disciples, and he asked the question, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now, we humans would sometimes ask that question because we want to make sure everybody understands who I am. Do you know who I am? It just comes to mind. You may not know the reference for that Remark, you don't need to. But that question is sometimes asked, well, who do you think I am? And then we're wanting to make sure that others acknowledge the fullness of who we are in our own skin. We want self-acknowledgement. We want validation. That sort of a thing. Was this question that Jesus asked his disciples in Caesarea Philippi driven from some personal insecurity, some self-validation? Or was he rather looking out for the health of the disciples themselves and the health of the project that he was involved in establishing? That is, he is the Messiah. He is the light of the world. He is seeking to ensure that his disciples recognize that the prophecies related to the progress of redemption are unfolding before their very eyes. And so he's taking their spiritual temperature, as it were. He's seeking to analyze their relative spiritual health. Who do you say that I am? Do you yet understand? Is this project going well? There may be even something in the direction of Jesus assessing his own methodologies and wondering, am I accomplishing what I'm setting out to do? Is this being effective? Do you yet understand who I am? But I would certainly argue that clearly it is not being asked from some avenue of personal insecurity or an emotional feeling, however justified it might be at any point in Jesus' life, because he also walked this walk as a human being for others to recognize the value and the blessing that he was bringing to their life. It's a very normal human impulse, but again the question as it relates For the moment, as it pertains to Caesarea Philippi, I would say it was in the interest of others to ascertain how their spiritual development is going. When Jesus spake to the Samaritan woman at the well, in the unfolding of that discourse, in the 26th verse of John chapter 4, Jesus said to her, you know, she's pondering about what is true worship, and she states that when the Messiah comes, he'll sort this all out, and Jesus says, I that speak unto you am he. Was this a clarification in order to set the record straight? Is that the kind of motive that's going on here? Where he's in that moment... He knows who he is. She isn't fully acknowledging him. And he feels that drive to make sure that she gets it, that I am he. He can raise his hand and say, hey, look over here. I am the Messiah. Do you get it? Or is he speaking this as a revelation so that this Samaritan woman could get her life straightened out? There's a distinction between get the record straight and... You need to know this so that you can get your life straight. Those are a couple of other occasions in Jesus' life where he made specific remarks about himself, and I think that we can see that his interest was in the other when he made that remark. And so we're going to, this afternoon, as we prepare to partake of the communion of the bread and cup, not to argue that this is not about remembering Jesus And letting that be the end point, which is to say, as it were, seeing Jesus on the cross, if you wish, evidently set forth and crucified, not that he is still there, but nonetheless to recognize that he did suffer on our behalf. And realizing all that Jesus has done salvifically and that he alone is the mediator between God and man and in him, the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily, and we are complete in Him which is the head. And all these associated ideas which are utterly glorious and terminate in Jesus Christ as an end point. I am not arguing that there isn't value in that form of remembrance. That's why I said I'm going to suggest there's space within which we can walk and explore not just random things for the sake of some sort of odd curiosity, but to see what the breadth of Jesus' intentions were. For I would argue, though I could be mistaken, I'm not going to pretend to know with perfection what was in the psychology of Christ, but when I look at his life overall, I see that everything he did, he did for others, with their interest and their benefit And it wasn't terminating on him solely. And so I would suggest that there is a very real remembrance that Christ himself is advocating that should be associated with the communion of the bread and cup, which is a remembrance in the interest of learning from Jesus' life and being encouraged from Jesus' life about things that will pertain to our own journey. And so, as we seek to express these ideas more fully, I will do so under the title of Remembering Brokenness, Anticipating Glory. Remembering Brokenness, Anticipating Glory. While we certainly need to develop this idea, the title seeks to capture what I think is a very real central objective that was in the heart of Jesus, in the institution of the bread and cup, and in dispensing the the bread and the wine, it was to teach them to remember brokenness and anticipate glory. Let's start with a baseline. We've essentially already warmed up to this baseline in passages that we've already looked into out of Matthew 16 And John chapter 4 but again let's start with a baseline touching the person of Jesus Christ many passages could be used to make this baseline and we will have to save for some other occasion a journey into the beautiful landscape of all the passages that would make the point I'm about to give to you but I will start with Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28 Jesus is speaking of himself indeed He is exhorting leaders as to their own dispositions. And then he says, with reference to himself in the 28th verse, he said, the Son of Man came not. For our purposes, we want to emphasize that word not. I think it's a categorical not, unless proven otherwise. And I mean this not obviously over against the flesh, but even psychologically and in terms of motive. So let me finish the sentence, of course. The Son of Man came not, perhaps you could say not ever, not even in the upper room in the night he was betrayed, not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to always be giving out and thinking of the other, to give his life a ransom for many. I don't think this is playing fast and loose with the Bible if we take that principle... And use it as a way of appreciating more fully what was going on in the upper room. And we started the message by referencing Jesus' own words as given in Luke, etc. When he said, "This do in remembrance of me." Based on Matthew twenty, I think we can say he did not say that in order for himself to be ministered on It was not about him being the end point of the attention. But from his side, as was his whole life, while he understands how these things work together, certainly he nonetheless is giving out for others. As a matter of fact, on that eventful evening in the upper room, the night in which Jesus was betrayed, we see this event in Jesus' life, which I think displays before us, if you don't mind my using this phrase, the psychology of Jesus, which is to say, what's in his heart? How is his mind thinking? What's his reference point within himself? And what I'm referring to is in John chapter 13 and in verse four, in that eventful night in which the communion of the bread and cup was instituted, we are told that Jesus rose up from that dinner, from reclining at table. He laid aside his garments He took a towel, he girded himself, and then he began to wash the disciples' feet. There is someone who is certainly the Lord and master of everyone in that room, and yet his heart is going out in ministry and in consideration and in selfless attention to his disciples, and you see it in that very night. It would be a strange thing if somewhere within that evening, perhaps because the emotions and the prospects of the awesomeness of what he was facing, one could argue, I'm not saying I do, I'm saying this is what you would be involved with, you would say he became overwhelmed with the magnitude of the events that were before him and he began to focus on himself And so you hear, do this in remembrance of me as a plea for him to be acknowledged, for his disciples to appreciate him more deeply. Now, I want to make it clear, since I'm dealing with the person of Christ, I won't give footnotes at every new paragraph, but I want to make it clear that I am not presenting this as an either-or proposition. Certainly, Jesus had emotions, Certainly he had struggles. We know he did in the Garden of Gethsemane. I'm not thereby in saying that, suggesting that probably a little bit was drawn toward himself. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is, I'm not dehumanizing him. He had all the emotions and all the feelings. And I'm also stating he knew very well the value of his person. And so certainly they need to understand him. Absolutely, 100%. That is the whole point. But I'm saying from his side, I would argue he is drawing them to remember him in the interest of their benefiting from that remembrance for their own personal journey. Certainly part of that journey can entail as we're gathered in this place, for example, and we're worshiping the Lord and we're facing nothing pressing at the moment. Jesus can be an endpoint, as it were, of that remembrance. But as we work through this study, I'm going to, I hope, show you ways in which you can enter into this ordinance and you can derive benefit for your own journey, which is to say you can remember brokenness and anticipate glory. Now again, we could go through many passages that show the outgoing orientation of the Lord Jesus, his his heart of ministry. But I will pass on to you a summary of the person of Christ as given to us from the Christian and Missionary Alliance founder A.B. Simpson with the following words. The life of Jesus Christ was a positive one. It was not all absorbed in self-contemplation and self-culture, but it went out in thoughtful benevolence to the world around him. His brief biography as given by Peter is one of practical and holy activity. He went about doing good, Acts 10.38. In his short life of three and a half years, he traveled on foot over every portion of Galilee, Samaria, and Judea incessantly preaching, teaching, and working with arduous toil. He was constantly thronged by the multitudes so that Luke tells us there was not time so much as to eat. Once at the close of a busy day, he was so weary that he fell asleep on the little ship amid the raging storm. Leaving his busy toil for a season of rest, still the multitudes pressed upon him and he could not be silent. After a Sabbath of incessant labor at Capernaum, we find him next morning, rising a great while before day, that he might redeem from his sleep the time to pray. His life was one of ceaseless service, and even still on his ascension throne, he is continually employed In ministries of active love. That's a very good summary, in my view, of the Gospels, which show exactly that. Jesus was always ministering to others and not centering attention on himself. So I would submit to you that it is unlikely that Jesus did anything simply for himself. So, in other words, do this in remembrance of me. It's unlikely that he did anything simply for himself as an end point. You understand what I'm saying? In other words, he was not in that world, in his mind, in his spirit. And it's doubly unlikely that he did so on the night he was betrayed. And yet he washed the saints feet, spent time in fellowship with them, instituted the symbols of the new covenant, interceded for their well-being. Remember John 17, sang a hymn and selfishly faced his appointment with crucifixion. Jesus accomplished all of those things as high points and everything in between and subsumed under those high points on the night he was betrayed. And all of that is for others. We could look through the evening's events and think of so many times when he could have turned it to himself. He knew he was going to be betrayed. Peter, James, and John couldn't even stay awake and pray for him. He could have turned it toward himself, and he never did. So it's very unlikely that from his mind when he was saying, do this in remembrance of me, that it's something like perhaps I would do or somebody else. After you've accomplished a lot for other people and you want them to remember you, remember what I did for you. And it doesn't have to be the grossest sort of thing that one would say that. I mean, there are times when that is relevant, but we're not debating that, are we? What we're talking about is the beauty of this ordinance. That's what we're doing. I believe that we can measure, at least in part, what Jesus' own orientation was to this question. The question being, what was in his spirit? What was his emphasis? What was primary in his heart? He, as an endpoint of attention, do this in remembrance of me, even though it's perfectly legitimate and necessary, and he would not say it wasn't. It has to be within the equation. But the question is, again, what was foremost in his spirit? He as an end point for the remembrance or the benefit that would be experienced in their own lives? The benefit that they would derive for their own journey from remembering? Well, I'll hasten to say that I suppose if you have a Christianity that is, not really deeply in a journey of walking with Jesus through life and living godly in Christ Jesus, then maybe the way in which the ordinance becomes just a remembrance of Christ as an endpoint is the only kind of language that your ears can really understand. But nonetheless, I do think that we can access a healthy measure of Jesus' own orientation to this question, Because certain things came up within which there's a sense that Jesus speaks to this very issue, not indeed in the formal observance of the ordinance post his resurrection, but you will remember that he was among the disciples for 40 days, speaking to them about the things of the kingdom of God. And I'm going to draw your attention to some events that are certainly within the ambit of what this ordinance is about, and I believe we can access, we can get a sense of what is important to Christ with the disciples that will continue their journey, because He sort of, in my view, gives forth an emphasis of what is important before He ascends, as it were. One way to ask this question is, do these symbols teach, the symbols of bread and the fruit of the vine? Do they teach? Do they clear up some confusion? Or in the language of the Italian reformer, Peter Martyr Vermigli, do these visible words of God make a point? And if so, what is the breadth? What is the scope of that point? What is entailed? Do these symbols teach? Should they be teaching every time we celebrate this ordinance? And if so, if these symbols were given by Jesus as visible words of God, I can't digress into this rich history of that theological concept as represented in the teachings of Peter Martyr Vermigli, for example, but you understand the general idea that there is the word of God, there is the message that we can read in the texts of Scripture. And this is one of the unique occasions in New Covenant Christianity or New Covenant relationship with God, where there is a visible attendant to the message that God wants us to understand. There's a visual aid and help. And so I believe that these symbols are designed to teach. The question is, what's the breadth of that lesson? Well, before we think that it's a simple lesson, I would remind you that Peter did not think so. Otherwise, I don't think he would have referenced what he did when writing his first epistle to the believers in 62 AD, within which he referenced the understanding of the holy men of old, the prophets, as it relates to the work of Christ. He writes to his readers in First Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 10 for ourselves anyway. And he's arguing we do need illumination. We do need some teaching on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and what it means as it relates to Jesus and what it means as it relates to us. He says, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come on to you. Do you even notice that sort of phrasing? Certainly, what the prophets were stating as it relates to the Messiah was relevant to himself in profound and obvious ways. And one need not extract that or act as if that's the wrong way of looking at the texts. But nonetheless, listen to the language of the Bible. They were simultaneously prophesying of the grace that should come to you. When they were searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when this Spirit testified beforehand the sufferings of the Messiah and the glory that should follow. That is Petrine language in keeping with the Bible. We'll see that there's a pattern here. But what I'm wanting to say is that is inspired apostolic language by which he summarizes into two broad categories essentially all the things that are prophesied about the Lord Jesus. There is one stream of prophecy that emphasizes the sufferings of the Lord Jesus. There is another stream of prophecy that emphasizes the glory of the Lord Jesus. And Peter adds, that should follow. But that was by no means evident to these prophets, or they wouldn't have been searching to figure out how you put this together. They would have already known. The suffering comes first, and then the glory follows. And they would have been like, oh, this is no problem, whatever is happening to Jesus. All of his disciples would have been well trained in this understanding. If the prophets knew it, they would have been teaching the godly. This is fairly straightforward. The Messiah will come. There will be a season of suffering. But hold on. Don't despair. Don't give up. Because the glory will follow. But I do want you to note those two clear categories. So by looking at 1 Peter, what I hope we're accomplishing is that certainly his readers still were grappling with these questions or he would not have brought the subject up to them. And in bringing up the subject, he also makes it clear to us that the prophets themselves before we even get to Jesus or anyone else as it relates to understanding the work of Jesus, he said the prophets themselves were not able to plumb the depths of what was implied in this work. So now if we come to AD 30, and after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, in fact, we're going to come to the 17th day of the month Nisan, in approximately AD 30. I'm not dogmatic on the chronology. Nisan would correspond to our April. So let's say the 17th day of April, which was the first day of the week, Sunday. Earlier on this same Sunday, a certain Mary, who probably was born or came from Magdala, she and some women had gone to the sepulcher and... They did not find Jesus in the sepulcher. They brought this report back to the upper room and John and Peter themselves run out to the sepulcher and discover the evidence empirically manifest that Jesus is resurrected. So these messages, these rumors, if you will, began to circulate and percolate around Jerusalem, particularly around the believers. At some point in the early afternoon of that same day, Two disciples of Jesus were making the seven-mile northwest trek from Jerusalem to a little town known as Emmaus. They were disheartened by the news that the body of Jesus was not laying on a cold slab in Joseph of Arimathea's fancy too. While they were musing on these things, a third person joined them. He heard their anguished arguments and then he added the following analysis. This is Jesus before his ascension. This is Jesus after he had instituted the communion of the bread and cup. This is as close as we're going to get to assessing Jesus' own reference point in a time frame where it's relevant to remember him in what he did. And we read in Luke 24, beginning in verse 25, that Jesus said unto these two disciples, "Anatos, atos O fools! I mean, literally, it means without using your mind. It's the negative of noose. It's the negative of your mind. He's saying, O fools, not using your mind well, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Using the ESV for the next phrase, was it not necessary that Christ would have to suffer these things and then to enter into his glory? Now, where did you hear those two broad categories before? We just read them in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 10 and 11. And Jesus is stating, if you understand well, All that the prophets have spoken, you will arrive at two broad categories. The sufferings and the glory that should follow. And he is stating to these disciples that if their minds don't perceive these things then they're going to be operating in their Christian journey as they were. They were literally journeying. So we'll use it as a metaphor for a Christian journey. Here are two real disciples. They heard the news of Jesus' resurrection, and suppose they came around to finally believing it. Still, they were on their journey walking relatively foolishly until they realized the significance of these two categories. There's suffering. You need to remember that. Remember the relevance of brokenness when you partake of the communion of the bread and cup, but also anticipate glory. We wonder, of course, how well these two disciples and the disciples in general, how well they understood any of the messianic passages. Obviously, they did not understand the suffer these things passages. Amen. Jesus said, should not the Messiah, was it not necessary that the Messiah would suffer these things? Now, why is he saying that? Not simply because of what he himself taught, though he did teach those things. He's primarily saying the prophets are teeming with this language. Now, it's another study to muse on the extent to which Jesus' ministry should have illuminated these particular disciples' understandings as it relates to the Messiah's calling and life and ministry and experiences. What I want to state at the moment, just to somewhat temper this, is to state, again, that the prophets themselves did not understand how these things worked together. Now, here again, I am not suggesting that Jesus is berating them unjustifiably. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am trying to say is he isn't dismissing these disciples in a caustic manner and acting as if you're a bunch of fools, I probably won't even use you in the future. You understand what I'm saying? He is saying if you don't get this clear in your head, you're going to be walking foolishly in your journey. And I'm suggesting that this ordinance comprises symbols that teach us along these lines so that we don't walk foolishly in our journey. So let's think about what they did not understand briefly. The suffer these things passages. Well, if you were to turn to Isaiah chapter 52, this is within the servant psalms or servant songs or servant prophecies of Isaiah's prophecies. I'm going to give you something by way of contrast. So take, for example, Isaiah 52 and verse 13. There we read, behold, my servant, that is clearly the Messiah. All the rabbis in antiquity know that it is the Messiah that's being referenced here. So the Jews knew that was the Messiah. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. That's Isaiah 52 and verse 13. It has a clear message of exaltation. So they would read a text like Isaiah 52 in verse 13, and they would read clear language about his exaltation. It would be very high. But only five verses later, and that really is just for our benefit, they read scrolls, you know. So as they just work their way down a few lines in the scroll, they would come to what for us is Isaiah 53 in verse 3, speaking of this same Messiah, And listen to the language now. He is despised. Does that sound like exaltation? He is rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid. Does that sound like exaltation? People hiding and embarrassed and ashamed of him? That's in this mix of humbling experiences, suffering, We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. That's a sample of passages that Jesus has in mind when he says, Didn't you know that the Messiah must suffer? The Messiah must suffer. I'll say that to this assembly. So far, this is important in order for us to do all the work that we need to with this ordinance. Let's start with this. And certainly this ordinance does show that. The Messiah must suffer. But nor did they appreciate the scriptural idea of entering into His glory. Now, while granting the difficulty of putting this all together, a difficulty that in many ways still remains among the people of God in certain respects, nonetheless, we must observe within the effort to get a good read on where their failures were, such that Jesus says, this is foolish, you're not using your minds. And we Christians could be in that same mode ourselves in our journey. We're not using our minds well, even though we have a symbolic representation of the truth that Jesus wants us to understand every time we partake of the bread and cup. But let me finish. Jesus, as it relates to understanding the messianic passages about glory, spoke often of his coming glory. I'll give you the beginning of one relevant section of scripture. It's that which occurred in the upper room. It's found in John chapter 17, the first verse is the following. These words spake Jesus and lifted up His eyes to heaven, not down on the earth, wallowing in self-pity with what was presently right in front of Him. I'm not making light of trials. I'm certainly not making light of crucifixion. I'm not making light of what God's people suffer. But what I am saying is he couldn't look on to Jesus in the sense that he was already up there with these experiences, but he lifted his eyes up to heaven to the promises that he knew pertained to the Messiah. And he said, Father, the hour is come. I'm going to be broken, but I'm anticipating glory. And that's how I'm working through this. I'm remembering this night that I'm going to be broken. But while I'm in this experience of brokenness, I am anticipating glory. Glorify thy son, he says. I read you a moment ago Isaiah 53 and verse 3, talking so fully of the sufferings of the Messiah. But the last verse of that portion of Isaiah's prophecy, the 12th verse of that chapter, reads like this. Therefore, remember what we read in verse 3 and all the other things that are about suffering? Then we read, therefore will I divide him a portion with the great. That's exaltation. It would do all of our hearts well when you re-listen to this teaching and go over your notes and prayerfully reflect on these truths to absorb those things. Because, The whole point of this study is this remembrance of the Lord Jesus is to help you in your own journey, as well as remembering what was, as it were, the end point in his life. That is, how these things are subsumed and completed and accomplished within his life. What I'm saying is, yes, he suffered, but now he has a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. And then listen to this, because... This is the cause. There is a causal relationship between what we just read and what we were about to be told. Because he hath poured out his soul unto death. That's suffering. That's humiliation. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Though being no transgressor himself, nonetheless, most people looked on him and had the opinion, you're a transgressor. And he was not a transgressor. But he went through that. And he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Now, what I'm pointing out here is, as it relates to our two disciple friends on the road to Emmaus, they did not understand either stream well. Obviously, they did not understand the suffering. But what I just sought to point out is, Jesus was teaching them about his glory, even in John 17, I mean, they heard that prayer or John could not have written it down. Amen? John 17. These two disciples from Emmaus, they would be within the mix of those that knew these things, surely. They, they even talked about all the things that should come to pass with the Messiah that did come to pass that are directly according to the word, but they didn't see how it fits into fulfillment. What I am saying, and here is a key principle, they were stuck in the moment. Think about it as they're walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, as they're taking in all this information, one thing they're not doing is remembering the past, and one thing they're not doing is anticipating the future. And I know why. Because the emotional depressing features of their present experience was keeping them stuck in the moment. They were too fixated on the fact that things were not going their way and they were losing hope and they felt defeated and all those attending feelings that they weren't in a disposition to remember brokenness and anticipate glory they were temporized they were stuck in their present negative circumstances and had no broader way of processing what this might mean so that in a healthy way they couldn't make that journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus and back again and whatever else they needed to do and Jesus came along and you know it's so interesting isn't it in Luke 24, what was the event within which they realized fully who Jesus was? When they heard him speak, they said, our hearts burn within us. But what was the event when their eyes were open and they realized who this one was? It was in the breaking of bread. Now, whether or not that was a purposeful, you know, display of the ordinance itself, I certainly would lean in that direction, but one does not have to make that case, in my view, in order to see the relevance of these things. That Jesus' own view of the value of the ordinance is not just knowing Him as an endpoint, remembering what He did And putting all that information in your mind and looking at Jesus and glorifying as we should, you understand? And just all the brain power is just going to Jesus, say, on the cross, you know, or resurrected or however you would contemplate it. But Jesus is saying you you would not be these foolish, sad, despondent disciples if you understood what the Messiah's life entails because it will be replicated in you. And so when you see the bread and you see the fruit of the vine, Yes, you remember the Messiah was broken and poured out his life. But you'll also realize that you can anticipate glory. And we want to make that case more fully now. This categorizing of the messianic prophecies that Jesus himself gave us, the sufferings and then the glory that Peter himself gave us, is so absolutely on point that within the discipline of Christology the theological discipline of teaching on the person of Christ, theologians use the idea of the two-fold states of Christ. And that's what I want to turn your attention to as we begin to head toward the completion of this particular study. The two-fold states of Christ. Now, initially, I want to make a clarification that this idea is not Language that is referencing the theanthropic truth of the Lord Jesus, that he has a divine and human nature. The theological truth that was hammered out and placed in definitive language at the Council of Nicaea and then ultimately in the Chalcedonian Creed of 451 AD. I state that because some of the early church fathers sometimes use that phrase, the two. Fold states of Christ to make reference to his ontology, to his being. Take, for example, the mid second century church father Tertullian. When he's writing against Praxius, he says, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, and each is God. Christ took upon himself, quote, a twofold state which is not confused, but co-joined in one person, Jesus, God, and man, the theanthropic truth of the Lord Jesus. And so we can be done with that now that I've clarified that in the history of dogmatic theology, we don't use the twofold state of Christ to reference his theanthropic person. No, the standard concept that is referenced by using the twofold state of Christ takes for granted that Jesus is the God-man. Our doctrine is about the experiences of the Messiah, not his ontology. It's not about who he is in himself, it's about his experiences. When we talk about the twofold state of Christ, it is not his inner glory, it is about his outer story. So let me run through some statements about this from various theological manuals or statements by theologians in various texts. First, this simple remark from Millard Erickson. The twofold state of Christ are the two major stages of Christ's life, his humiliation and exaltation. It need be no more complicated than that. But, I do think it can begin to settle in your spirit in more useful ways, even by using Erickson's language, the two major stages. So we could substitute the word plot. You could substitute the idea of volume. It's the two major volumes of Jesus' life. And so in other words, you're starting to think that there really are stages to this thing. It's not imaginary. This is what the scriptures teach. There's a stage. There's a, there's a part in this overall story where there's a plot that fundamentally has to do with suffering. But then there's a second element to the plot, or you might say volume two, that still has chapters and all sorts of language in it about the Messiah's experience. But it's all in volume two of the glory that should follow. And in many respects, though never Are these ideas absolutely dichotomized because John, for example, said we beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. But he beheld it by faith. He beheld it by inner spiritual awareness. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because the Bible said he had no form that we would desire him. He didn't have an outward glory. He had an inner beauty of person that only a few could really appreciate. In fact, nobody did fully. They all forsook him. So no one did fully. Donald McKim, the Scottish theologian, expresses the theological concept in this way. It is a concept that structures Christology. It is based on Christ's state of humiliation, status humiliationis. He gives the Latin, I gave it my best. Including his incarnation and crucifixion, and his state of exaltation, status exaltationis, including his resurrection, ascension, and exaltation. How about this from Samuel Macaulay Jackson? The twofold state of Christ. This is the state of humiliation and the state of exaltation. The state of humiliation embraces the supernatural conception, birth circumcision, education, earthly life, passion, death, and burial of Christ. Well, you know, not to get ahead of the story, but you will have similar experiences along those lines. You're born into this human race, circumcised in various ways, restricted and cut off or whatever. you got to be educated, you have an earthly life, you might suffer, you might die, you might be buried. Jackson goes on to say, "The state of exaltation includes the resurrection, ascension, and the sitting at the right hand of God." Well, we'll give you this from an 18th-century Swiss preacher, Jean Osterwald. And each time we give you a new statement, we're enlarging the scope, just a wee bit. The state of Christ is twofold: of humiliation and exaltation. First, Concerning the former, it is to be observed in opposition to the Jews to whom it was offensive that it was predicted by the prophets, especially in that noble prophecy, Isaiah 53, where the Messiah is described as a man subject to weakness. What might that have to do with me? Well, let's get through this and see. There's language that says the Messiah would be subject to weakness. Kenneth Copeland says that'll never be. You are subject to inheritance and wealth and and always being the head, like visibly, outwardly. Your glory is to be manifested with your shiny teeth and your big cars. Maybe you're walking this journey relatively foolishly, even though you might partake of the communion of the bread and cup, because you remember Jesus and he's exalted and that's where you are now, seated in Christ, far above all principalities and powers and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. Well, we must prod forward in our study here. The Messiah was subject to weaknesses, forsaken, subjected to troubles. And who, after his sufferings and death, was to arrive at the height of glory? But when the Jews could not deny that many prophecies referred to his state of humiliation, some of them imagined that there were two Messiahs. The one, the glorious son of David, and the other, the son of Joseph, who was to suffer death. They chose rather to fix upon two messiahs than to acknowledge a twofold state. And while I need to make somewhat of a beeline to application as this message unfolds and must strive to keep things in their proper order, allow me this bit of foreshadowing at the moment by which I can make some application and say that in the minds of some Christians, they think there's two different Christian experiences. And they're the type of Christian that believes in triumphing and wealth and prosperity and outward display. And that's it. And that without that, you're not living out the Christian life. And they don't see that there's a state of humiliation and there's a state of glory. Jesus, when he was brought to the cross, he had a garment that was seamless from top to bottom. It stated that that's a relatively expensive garment, and I bet it was. So certainly God looks after us. We're not denying those sorts of thought patterns. But we are trying to state, and I will not digress into trying to temper or Placate various objections because I want the emphasis to be because that's what this is to teach. There was in Jesus Christ a distinct state and experience of humiliation. And it started from His incarnation all the way to the crucifixion. And then after that, He entered into His glory. One last witness to this concept from the Westminster Confession of Faith. We'll take question 46 and question 51. Question 46, what was the state of Christ's humiliation? The answer, the state of Christ's humiliation was that low condition wherein he, for our sakes, emptying himself of his glory, took upon him the form of a servant in his conception and birth, life, death, and after his death, until his resurrection. Question 51. What is the state of Christ's exaltation? The state of Christ's exaltation includes his resurrection, ascension, sitting at the right hand of the Father, and is coming again to judge the world. Now, in some of these theological statements that I've been reading to you, there are passages that are intermixed as they make their point. They aren't necessarily the passages that I'm giving you now, which is to say I did not simply extract their passages and then line them all up, but what I do want to do is now pass on to you seven primary passages from the Word of God which manifests Christ's two states as primary plots to his story. Now, the interesting thing about these seven passages is that while the case is made throughout the gospels and the epistles that Jesus suffered and that he also has been glorified and yet will experience a fuller display of his glory to every eye, these passages include both elements within their context. Whether or not their intention with one another is not necessarily the point to be made, but there is some tension that's available, which is to say, if we don't understand how these things relate, then we too will be not using our minds well, and we may experience tension within our experiences because these two things are there, and they have to be sorted out well in order to have your journey go well in the way that Jesus successfully overcame the world on his journey. So, Philippians chapter 2 is certainly one of the most rich passages along these lines. I'll read this to you from the fifth verse out of the ESV version. Have this mind among you. Now, dear brothers and sisters, you will forgive me, but I must observe that this is the burden of this message. It is not to distract you from having a mind about Jesus as an endpoint. If even after everything that I've said, you only have the mental capacity at the moment to think only about Jesus and what he did, that's between you and the Lord. But what I'm trying to state is there is space within the observance of this ordinance to recognize its message to you for your journey as you go forward. And the language of Philippians chapter 2 here is saying, have this mind within you benefit from what you know about Jesus. It's yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to grasp or to fuss over or to whine about, if you're understanding what I'm trying to say. In his journey, his the true value of his person was not observed and appreciated. And nor did he have it experientially, but he didn't grasp onto it and demand that it be understood, etc. He emptied himself. That's the state of humiliation. He took upon him the form of a servant. Humiliation. He was born in the likeness of men. Humiliation. He was found in human form. Humiliation. He humbled himself. That's obvious enough. By becoming obedient. Still humiliation. To the point of death. Humiliation. Even the death on a cross. Humiliation. Then we get to verse 9. And do you understand that in many respects... This is a linear presentation. This is a chronological outlying of what occurred to Christ. Therefore, then came the state of exaltation. Therefore, God has highly exalted and bestowed. There's exaltation. God bestowed. God, God gave something to him. Do you understand? But only because he first embraced and lived in and was obedient in humiliation, God bestowed on him a name. There's exaltation. Above every name, there's exaltation. Yet again, he's got a name. That's an exalting experience. And then he takes that name, puts it above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee that speaks to his exaltation shall bow. That speaks to his exaltation in heaven and on earth and under the earth. A second passage, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. Here again from the ESV version. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. There's a mystery. There's something about Jesus' experience that is mysterious. And the burden of this study is to emphasize when you investigate this mystery, you should not think solely of how it pertains to Christ alone. Certainly, When looking on to Jesus and deriving benefit, as the author to the Hebrews makes the point, you need to understand who he is. That's where all the teaching comes from. But then again, we're right back to the ordinance. Yes, that represents his body and not yours. Yes, that represents his blood and not yours. In the sense that their ultimate reference is Christ. But they nonetheless are here to teach you about your own journey and experience. But I must continue. When you think about this mystery of godliness, I may not have finished my remark. Think about how it also relates to you as a follower of Jesus, as a Christian. Small c, if you wish, you know. I mean, I don't care if you capitalize the c in Christian, but what I mean is he's the Christ and you're just a little anointed one, but there is a correlation. Or Why call yourself a Christian? We should be as He was in this world, or as He is now, but in terms of His full experience in this world. Here's the mystery. Jesus was manifest in the flesh. That's humiliation. And it ends with, at the end of the passage, taken up in glory. So in 1 Timothy 3.16, you don't have this sort of lineal, pure chronological arrangement of statements When we're told he was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations. You hear what I'm saying? Proclaimed among the nations. That kind of came after his ascension, don't you think? I think so. Believed on in the world, taken up into glory. Well, taken up into glory is his ascension. But what you do see is there's a beginning point manifest in the flesh. That's humiliation. Taken up in glory is exaltation. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. Now from the King James, we're told we see Jesus. Is this the Jesus that you see? When you partake of this ordinance, dear brothers and sisters, even as it relates to Jesus, when you partake of this ordinance and you hold in your hand broken bread, which represents his broken body, and you dispense within your mouth pressed out fruit of the vine, which represents his blood violently extracted out of his being, Do you remember brokenness? You say, well, yeah, I do. I mean, there's the broken bread. There's the fruit of the vine that's been pressed out. I remember that. But I'm asking you, in addition, this afternoon, while you remember brokenness, do you anticipate glory? Because I believe that that's what the full import of this ordinance is intended to teach. I say that because... Hebrews chapter 2 says, when you look at Jesus, when you think of Jesus, we see Jesus, you should see him as first made a little lower than the angels. Is he now a little lower than the angels? No, but he was. So you should remember that there's no way you're breaking that body of the eternal logos unless it takes on flesh through humiliation. You follow what I'm saying? And that's what this represents. But when you see Jesus, you need to see him and realize that story is true. But it was for the purpose of suffering death, certainly in his case, a salvific act, which we don't replicate, of course. But now he is crowned with glory and honor. And we need to see that, dear brothers and sisters, because the one that this ordinance points to has been resurrected from the dead and has been exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high. That is to say, the one who suffered as a Christian is our best and beautiful example of how one who overcomes truly enters into the glories of God. He's proof. He is our forerunner. He is the example that we are to follow within his steps. First Corinthians chapter 15 Beginning with verse 3, Paul says, I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ the Messiah died. He died. Amen. When we partake of the communion of the bread and cup, dear brothers and sisters, while I grant that right now, as an assembly, we're not under any particularly acute persecution or threat of personal impalement or other experiences of bodily harm, yet remember the principle and apply it even in lesser experiences of suffering. What I am saying is, he died. Christ died, yes, for our sins. And I don't mean to reduce what he did when I add for fuller understanding in order to accomplish the work of the kingdom. So what I'm saying is, Paul filled up that which was lacking in the sufferings of Christ. I can't digress into exegeting every statement I make. It's in your Bible. I obviously don't mean heretical things when I state that any more than Paul did. But what I'm saying is Jesus died. One way of stating that is to fulfill the purposes of the kingdom, to advance the kingdom. And we too will suffer in the interest of advancing the kingdom. He was buried, but then we're told he rose Again, there's another passage right in the scope of these two verses. You've got his humiliation and his exaltation. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. For Christ also has once suffered for sins. Now, here's an interesting thing. Did he suffer only on one day? Let's say the 16th of the month Nisan. Or I should go back further than that, of course. You know, the 14th of the month, Nisan, or some other day. Did he suffer on one particular day or one particular event? It's not what we're referring to here. Really, more broadly, what it's talking about is that part of his life, that state that he went through. It happens once. Once you're through that part of the plot, eternity turns to the plot of glorification. Christ also has suffered once for sins. The just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Here you go. Being put to death in the flesh. That's humiliation. But quickened by the Spirit. That's exaltation. Do you understand? That isn't just he came back to life. That is the act that initiated the eternal experience of exaltation. Second Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. For though he was crucified through weakness... There's language about humiliation, crucified through weakness. In other words, other people could beat him up. That might be your experience. There may be Christians, and I know there are. I don't necessarily know any by name, but this sort of thing has always existed. There are Christians out there that think they're doing God's service that do not believe that any evil entities, especially within our modern liberal societies that are supposedly democratic and uh, value the God-given rights of the pursuit of happiness, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, they don't believe that a Christian should allow themselves to be taken advantage of by bullies. I'm not advocating that you sign up for it, but what I'm saying is they bullied Jesus. He was crucified through weakness. You understand the sense, right? Not that he doesn't have the power to stand against it. He said to Pilate, I could call ten legions of angels, but he was crucified because he was in a state of humiliation. And now we're told in 2 Corinthians 13, 4, he lives by the power of God. And then it says... For we also are weak in Him, but we shall live with Him by the power of God. I recommend, dear brothers and sisters, in keeping with the theme of this message, that when you partake of the communion of the bread and cup, you bring into that observance the language, we also, we also. This is what Jesus went through, and you remember the broken body of Christ, but you also, as He did, anticipated the glory. And you do it as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9 speaks of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that through his poverty we might be rich. You see, this is interesting because it's almost setting it up in reverse. He was rich. He had an exalted condition, but He humbled himself, but that exalted position... I don't want to get too technical here, but it wasn't the position of the Messiah. It wasn't the position of the eternal Logos that took on flesh to be the Messiah. Though that one who is the Messiah is the eternal Logos, but now he has taken on flesh. And what we're talking about is as it relates to the Messiah, as it relates to the eternal Logos who took on flesh... His story will have two main plots. The first will be humiliation, and then the second will be exaltation. So we're quite familiar with the state of Jesus' suffering. Why? Well, because of the language that Paul uses, and it is applicable to ourselves. That Jesus Christ, in preaching and in teaching, and even in some churches that have crucifixes with or without an image of the supposed Jesus on that cross, as Paul wrote to the Galatians in the third chapter in the first verse, he says, Jesus Christ has been evidently set forth and crucified among us. Now, as we partake of the communion of the bread and cup, there is a sense in which we are evidently setting Jesus forth in this ordinance, in his state of humiliation, being crucified among us. And that's perfectly legitimate. But what we're wanting all of us to understand, as I believe Jesus wants you to understand, as he said to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, you need to understand all that the prophets have spoken concerning the Messiah's career. Not just that he would suffer, but that he would enter into his glory. So let's just take a moment and evidently set forth Jesus, not now, in His crucifixion among us, but in His glory among us. Just a couple passages. Take what we read, for example, in Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. John says, I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like unto the Son of God. And what does the Son of God look like now? He's clothed with a garment down to the foot. And he he is girt about the chest with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool. Picking up the imagery that is referred to the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were as a flame of fire, his feet like unto fine brass, as if they were burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his hand, in his right hand, seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and I am the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, but I live forevermore. This is Jesus Christ biblically being set forth before us, evidently in his glory. Take another passage that does the same thing, but in this case does it somewhat in reverse. In this particular passage, We are first shown his glory, and then we are reminded of his humility over against what he just stated a moment ago, that he was dead, and now he lives forevermore. Revelation chapter 5, beginning with verse 5. And one of the elders said unto me, said to John, who was weeping because no one was found worthy to open up the book of God's revelation to men, He says, weep not, behold, who? The lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seals thereof. Then verse six, very next verse, and I beheld and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain. Having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb. They fell down before the lamb having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying to the Lamb, the Lamb who was slain so viciously and and cut asunder, they're saying to the Lamb, He's being worshipped, He's being exalted, the Lamb, dear brothers and sisters, in this case, the perfect, precious Lamb of God. But I suppose you know Jesus has many sheep, and their journey might be similar within which they have a lamb experience in this earth. But as you saw, before we get to Jesus Christ being represented as the lamb that was slain, he is first introduced as the lion, the exalted one of the tribe of Judah. And they say, you are worthy. You are worthy to take the book, to open the seals thereof. Why? Because you accepted humiliation because you were slain. And you redeemed us to God by this blood that we're going to remember today out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And you have made us unto our God, kings and priests, and we will reign on the earth. So in closing, I ask you, in that as it relates to Jesus in his person, both plots are in motion. One has been fulfilled. He said, it is finished. My state of humiliation is done. Now He has already entered into His glory. We see Him glorified. He is the Lion, having already gone through the season of experience within which He was the Lamb. Both aspects are true of Christ. Therefore, we have a question that is worth reflecting on. In this ordinance, to remember Jesus in that he is presently in his state of exaltation. Why not use some other symbol by which to remember Jesus by? Why not use a crown? Why not pass out crowns to each of us so that we will remember Christ in his exalted state as a way of encouraging our own hearts? Why not use the symbol of a lion or the symbol of a scepter by which to remember Jesus Clearly, the Bible tells us that we are to partake of this ordinance in remembrance of him. And you could remember him as he is right now, as the exalted son of God, the lion of the tribe of Judah. But he says, you do this in remembrance of me. And every time you do, you show forth the Lord's death till he come. Why? Because it would be inappropriate to manifest the remembrance of Jesus through a crown, or he as the Lion of Judah, or using a scepter by which to remember Jesus? Because those things are not true of him right now? He has not yet entered into his glory, and he won't be in his glory until he returns again? No, that is not why he says that. We know that Jesus is reigning now. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 says, We are to look on to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So when we remember Jesus today, why not use the symbol of a throne We could have a chair up here, well decorated, and each one of you could come up and take a seat as a way of encouraging your heart. That isn't silly, even if it's unfamiliar. It isn't silly at all. If we were thinking this through before Jesus instituted this ordinance, and you didn't have all the history behind you, you would maybe think it's a little silly to represent Christ by some bread and some grape juice. So the question isn't because that would be silly. That's not silly at all. That would be a quite interesting exercise. And you could remember Christ that he, as we're told, he is set down now at the throne of God. When Jesus was risen from the dead, he himself said, Pasa All authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Matthew 28 and verse 18. All authority is already His. In Hebrews chapter 2, I'll give you some highlights from verses 8 through 10. We're told we see Jesus. He was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. But now we see Him, and you should if you don't. You need your Christology fixed. You're supposed to see Him presently crowned with glory and honor. It's very interesting that in the 10th verse, the thought of bringing many sons onto glory comes into the picture. But at the moment, I want to stress that Jesus is presently crowned with glory and honor. So why not use some symbol of his exaltation? Why do we use the symbol of his broken body? Why do we use broken bread and the blood of the vine? Well, there you go, full circle from where we started. Is this mostly about him and his need to be acknowledged, or is he thinking about us to help us in our journey? I believe the answer as to why we use these symbols of his humiliation is because we need the memory of Jesus' state of humiliation as we live out our own Christianity until He comes. For as long as we are here in our Christian journey prior to Jesus' second coming, we are going to be in our state of humiliation. And he says, when you do this, you do this in remembrance of me, realizing you show forth your Lord's death until He comes. And that isn't intended just to remind you that He died on the cross, but that if the Lord of your life suffered death, then you remember His state of humiliation as an encouragement to you in your journey. Don't forget what Hebrews chapter 9, and verse 28 says. It says, Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him, he shall appear the second time without sin. A phrase that if you weren't more well taught would perhaps have to get sorted out. But what it's referring to is when he comes the second time, when he returns, he is going to re- be returning not in the context of solving the sin problem and even bringing his people through the journey of their own purification. He's going to be coming not on the topic of sin and what it brings about in our lives in terms of bondage and things we need to be cleansed from. He's going to come to manifest our salvation. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 11, it's a faithful saying, if we be dead with him, When we partake of this today, brothers and sisters, you put these emblems and you remember your Lord's death, derive an encouragement and an application and a benefit for your own lives. Because the Bible says, if we be dead with Him, we shall also live. In other words, if we accept our own state of humiliation, we will enter into our glorification. If we suffer, we shall also reign. But if we deny Him, If we run away from our humiliating experiences and we seek after self-acknowledgement and glorification, He will deny us. When will this state of humiliation end for ourselves? The answer to that question has everything to do with why Jesus instituted this ordinance for the benefit of those of His disciples that after His ascension would have to continue on their own Christian journey. When will our state of humiliation end? It's very clearly stated in a simple verse, though taught in principle everywhere, but it's stated in Colossians 3 and verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall we also appear with Him in glory. When you do this, remember the death of your Lord until He comes. Keep doing this and remember the state of humiliation and how it applies to you. But as you remember brokenness, dear brothers and sisters, also anticipate glory because He is coming and when He comes, the humiliation will be over and glory will enter in. And so you should be encouraged, little stones. Be lively, even when you're rejected, for the now crowned cornerstone is coming soon. I remind you of the language of Daniel chapter 2. It's so wonderful to read in its fullness, but I will not do so at the moment. But you can read verse 34, you can read verses 44 through 45, and... You'll read afresh this beautiful picture of a stone cut without man's hands. It smites the image of all the nations. It breaks them to pieces. And then a kingdom is set up which will not be given to another. This stone is exalted in this prophecy of Daniel. But that same stone was once kicked around by the petty feet of wicked men. And the language of Psalm 118 captures this Two-volume story in the language that sounds like this. The stone which the builders refused, the experience of the Messiah, your Messiah, which you will be taught through these symbols today, this will be teaching you that the builders rejected Him. They humiliated Him. They arrested Him. They falsely accused Him. They ran roughshod over Him in their courts. They wickedly and unjustly put him to death. The stone which the builders refused is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. And I'm suggesting Jesus wants you to know that whole picture when you partake. This is the Lord's doing. And while the whole doing isn't done yet in your life, it's done by promise And by principle, remember your Lord when you're suffering and partake of the communion of the bread and cup. And if you are facing being broken and poured out and abused, remember Him until He comes. Christians, keep doing this. Once He comes, we won't have to do this anymore because we will have entered into our own glory. Dear brothers and sisters, the rejection is real, but it is not our final state. Remember brokenness, but anticipate glory. The Bible tells us to come indeed unto the Lord Jesus, disallowed of men, but chosen of God and precious. You also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up what? Spiritual sacrifices. That's not just trying to sing a little better on a particular Sunday. That's talking about your entire journey. That'll be sacrificially oriented. Offer up your life as a spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion. Why is that contained in the Bible? So that you know that God has already successfully taken a particular stone that was kicked around by the Petty feet of wicked men, and he has exalted him. He laid in Zion a chief stone, elect, precious, and here's the promise. If you believe on Jesus, you will not be confounded. That is a tacit promise that you will be glorified. How about the language of 1 John? It's so wonderful. You know it, but think about it now in this context. First John chapter 3 and verses 1 through 2. Behold! What manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, may I recommend as you partake of the communion of the bread and cup today that you look on these symbols. You do remember Jesus and what He Himself did in His own person. And you certainly can terminate those thoughts on Him while you absorb the import of that as it relates to you. And think of this as you look at these symbols behold in these visible words of God the manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons or the technatheu, the children of God therefore the world does not know us as was once Jesus experienced in his humiliation though maker of the universe the world didn't give him his due Therefore, the world doesn't know us because it didn't know Him. I hope to God this is getting through. When you partake of this, you are seeing what Jesus' life was like so you can correspond it to your own experience and remember that He experienced brokenness, but He is now glorified. And you can as well and should anticipate glory. Verse 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, as was Jesus in His humiliation. He was the Son of God, but it does not yet appear what we shall be. Our experience and how we're treated in many cases, and all sorts of experiences, it doesn't yet appear what we shall be. And if you have the project of making sure everybody knows who you are, good luck with that. You can't walk as a Christian and have that as, a, as an objective. That's not following Jesus. It does not yet appear what we shall be. You know, it doesn't look right to take the creator of the universe and rip him to pieces, do you think? That didn't look like what he deserved when he was crucified, is that right? When is that experience gonna end for us? When when we don't get treated as we should be. And I'm not talking about diving then into self-pity, I'm just saying, as a matter of fact, when does that state of experience end. John says, but we know when he shall appear, we're gonna be glorified. As often as you do this, Jesus said, do it in remembrance of me. Remember my death for the benefit of your own journey and comprehending the ways of God so that your mind is not foolish as it relates to your sufferings. As you're going through brokenness, anticipate glory. And you will better go through your sufferings. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we don't get stuck on the road to Emmaus in the temporized experiences of the moment. While we look not on the things which are seen, but at that which is not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal and filled with humiliation. In your body even, as you get older, you look in the mirror. You're not as glorious as you might have thought you were before, you know. But you're going to have a glorified body. Not to prance around with, of course, but you understand what I'm saying. Remember brokenness. It's a part of the experience. But don't just remember brokenness is what I'm saying. Because Jesus didn't give us that ordinance solely to remember brokenness. He wants you to anticipate glory. You say, well, why didn't he give us a crown? Because we're still in our state of humiliation. And he's thinking about us. Well, I'm just going to close with reading to you the five first verses of Revelation chapter 14. I think all of you agree with my eschatological orientation that sees this as relevant for potential overcomers. Others may not have this form of eschatology, but I hope nonetheless you'll be encouraged somehow, because certainly these individuals were redeemed from among men, and I trust everyone believes that that must be speaking of us somehow. This isn't necessarily the most glorious passage anybody could think about, but I just want to read this to you as we bring this study to a close, and then we turn to this ordinance within which we can Remember brokenness and anticipate glory. I want you to anticipate this scene. This could be yours. This could include you. And I looked, and lo, a lamb, but a glorified lamb, obviously. But nonetheless, a lamb stood on a mountain, Mount Zion. And with him, 144,000 that are close enough to the Lord Jesus in the context of their own life and journey, that they have His Father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps, and they sung as it were a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the hundred and forty and four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins like Joseph. They humble themselves and they run away from sin. And many around them look at them and think they're silly little boys because they just don't live life and go after their own glorification. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which followed the Lamb wherever He went. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits out of this state of humiliation in this particular context, being the first fruits unto God, And to the Lamb, and in their mouth was found no guile. You might think that that's just a congratulation to these people. I would say that that's talking about their humiliation. They kept their mouth, among many other things. In their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. I think that's primarily now speaking of their glorification, because None of us are without fault absolutely before God. But now, because they watched over their lives and they allowed themselves to be humbled under the mighty hand of God, now he exalts them, purifies them. What is a greater form of exaltation than to be utterly free from sin and every vestige of wickedness in our spirits? Jesus didn't have that struggle, but when he comes the second time, he's coming without the sin question. And if we will allow ourselves to be humbled now, then the time will come when the sin issue will be over. And we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. May the Lord bless the word to your hearts.